In the practice of meditation, we're learning to turn our intention inwards, to look at this body and mind, and particularly to see how to free the mind from suffering, the experience of suffering, by understanding the nature of this body and this mind. And we're lucky, fortunate, as the Buddha has already done the work for us. Through his great Bharami, he was self-enlightened, practiced in the forest, and then spent the rest of his life teaching the Dhamma. And the Buddha, in his wisdom, talked about a human being as being the five khandhas. Rupa, Vetana, Sanya, Sankhara, Vijnana. So when we're practicing meditation and investigating the true nature of this body and mind, we use these terms as our place of learning, our place of practice, it's the five khandhas. And suffering, the Buddha pointed out, arises when they're the upadana khandhas, their basis for clinging attachment, fueled by ignorance, craving, But the candors themselves are not the uh, source of suffering or the cause of suffering, it's the clinging fed by ignorance that's the cause of suffering. The candors themselves are just what they are. Body and mind is just what it is. They're of that nature. Except for we uh, are deluded by them. We forget the truth, even if we've seen it once. We forget, even if we've heard about it from the Buddha's words. We forget. <coughs> and we keep attaching to these candors over and over again. Seeing them as uh, self, permanent, source of happiness. So much of our practices directing our attention back to the candors to see <coughs> see their true nature, see the way they are, see through these delusions and the grasping nature of the mind to start freeing it, thereby liberating it from attachment, clinging, ultimately liberating the mind from ignorance. <coughs> In Thai, they use the word Dhamma Chat, means nature, the way things are. Obviously, this word is related to the word Dhamma, truth. And they say the mind of the, particularly the Arahant, sees the Kandas as just 
just nature. Just they're just that way. <coughs> it's not that the practice of Dhamma leads us to develop some new viewpoint that the candors are good or bad, they're mine, they're not mine, there's a self, not self and so on. It's actually just bringing the mind to see the nature of the candors and just to leave them there as it were. The mind no longer mistakenly grasping at them as a self or seeking happiness in them. To do that, we have to train the mind to see this Dhamma chart, this nature of the candors. We have to keep bringing up mindfulness, keep reflecting over and over again, developing insight. A lot of that practice is repetitive. So even in itself, we sometimes lose energy, get bored with the practice, turn away from it, because we've done it so much. So also part of the practice is about developing supportive qualities, good attitude, developing patience, developing effort, energy, training the mind to keep coming back to looking at the truth. One of the ways the Buddha talked about that is the development of the spiritual faculties, spiritual powers, sata, virya, sati, samadhi, panya. Keep putting effort, bringing up effort to develop these. Keep putting effort into bringing up mindfulness with the continuity of mindfulness and experiencing states of calm and use these as a basis for insight. The calm mind can see things more clearly. It's these two aspects that we're training in as our spiritual faculties develop, then our ability to calm the mind is improved and our ability to investigate is improved. They're both part, part of the same mind, so the passive part, the calming, tranquility of samadhi, and then the active part, the investigation, contemplation, that leads to wisdom. But both in the same mind, and backed by sata, some confidence, faith in the Buddha's teachings and the path of practice, and supported by wiriya, constantly coming back to bringing up, summoning up more effort. All of this guided by mindfulness in the center. The mindfulness is the balancing factor of the five spiritual powers. Constantly guarding over, overseeing our experience. Balancing sata with panya, balancing samadhi with wiriya. So we don't lapse into a passive state, dullness, even though we've put effort in developing samadhi and experienced some calm, peace, happiness. We don't just indulge in that or just let it bring us to a dull state of mind, a kind of dead end of samadhi where we don't actually develop wisdom.
we need to keep bringing up effort, redoubling our efforts to go out and investigate, investigate the very state of calm and then also use it to investigate these candas to see their nature, see them as anicca, dukkha, anatta. Satara is like the the fuel of the practice, the beginning point. But we can also, our satara can get hijacked when we don't have right view, we don't have wisdom guiding the practice sometimes. Our satara can lead us off into just believing some method or some viewpoint on the practice is the right thing. And off we go in the kind of in the wrong direction put a lot of effort and a lot of faith into one part of the practice and it can even turn around and harm us or become a source of more suffering. Sometimes you know, as we read through the biographies, biographies of teachers or even the life of the Buddha himself, you know, sometimes we get caught into extreme views. Asceticism, think if it's if it hurts, it must be good. So we get very strict with ourselves, cut off food supply or rest, or do more extreme practices, try and minimize things, cut things off, which can be helpful, but then if it becomes a fixed view, then it's heading towards Atakilamatana Yoga. Just assuming that the painful way causing Hardship and suffering to the body will somehow bring us insight, bring us liberation. Then we veer back towards karma sukhali karna yoga. Find excuses to relax, give ourselves a rest, indulge a bit, do this, do that. And it ends up as just distraction and feeling sensuality, lust and so on. We tend to veer between the extremes. And sometimes it's just a, a wrong viewpoint that we haven't investigated yet. We just assume it's right. Maybe we heard it from someone else. Maybe we read it. Maybe it's just our own idea that we somehow think must be right. We believe too much in our own opinion. So mindfulness comes in also to help balance with wisdom, balance our views on the practice all the views we have on the practice, as long as we're still unenlightened, they're going to be based around these five khandhas. That's why the Buddha said this is the place of practice, coming to see the nature of the khandhas. So Sankara khandha is still where thought arises, where viewpoints harden, based on information stored in sanya, memories we have experiences, sometimes Vaitana arises you know, when, you, when you have a good viewpoint or something that's agreeable, well you might get Sukha Vaitana from that, holding on to it. If we don't investigate these five candors, then we'll constantly be prey to different views. Views about the world, about the Dhamma, about ourselves, views about the candors themselves and so on. It's endless. So in the end, after 
more and more balancing of the spiritual faculties, in the end it comes down to sati. Developing more and more mindfulness, the quality of knowing. Knowing in an unbiased, unadulterated way the nature of this body and mind. <coughs> Exposing it so that it becomes true, clear to the mind. It's impermanent. This body is impermanent. Feeling is impermanent. Memory is impermanent. Thought formations are impermanent. Sense consciousness, impermanent. What's Im impermanent is dukkha. Unreliable, unenduring. Whatever happiness and pleasure we can experience with the candors doesn't last. And it brings us so much more pain, more suffering. The more we attach to them, the more we suffer. And that process is going on, it's, it's Dhamma chant, it's nature. So, whether we agree or not, we like it or not, we're mindful or not, it's going on all the time. The process of clinging to the candors, the candors bringing us different experiences of pleasure and pain. It's a condition process, a conditioning process. The candors condition the mind. They feed more ignorance, more delusion, if we don't really investigate them and start to understand the truth. So we keep developing this quality of sati, mindfulness, through the practice, over and over again. Bhavita bahulikata. Keep developing mindfulness, do it a lot, practice a lot. All the teachers we've had from the time of the Buddha, they all all teach this one thing. It's a, a Dhamma that is always useful, always beneficial. And it's something that should be developed a lot. We all need it. You know, whether you're born into luxury or poverty, you're male, you're female, whatever your country, race, culture, it's one thing that differentiates people. People have sati, people who don't. Or one person, periods of time they have sati, periods of time they don't. Ajahn Chah used to say, you can see somebody who's cultivating sati and mindfulness in their daily life, just the way they walk, their behavior, the way they go about things. It's something you become familiar with the more you practice. And what is it like to bring up mindfulness, be more aware, obviously, First of all, with your external behavior, what you're doing, what you're saying. Keep it within the bounds of sila, right practice, follow the vinaya and so on. And then internally, how it's guide, guarding over the mind, protecting the state of mind. Ultimately bringing you to experience peace, which is what we want. <clears throat> really peace is the continuous presence of sati. As long as sati is guarding over the mind <coughs> and supporting <coughs> supporting sampajanya and panya, then the mind can start to practice peace, the peace of letting go, letting go of its obsession with the candors, feelings of pleasure and pain, thoughts, memories, sense objects, 
in the way the body is and the way we relate to this body. Sati is like in the center, it's the key to the practice. It's not the only part of the practice, all the other factors support it and it supports them. But it's something we have to keep developing. And we'll see, we can often just reflect back on one day, you know, the, the results of losing mindfulness. And we lose mindfulness when we're sitting, so we lose track of our meditation object, get caught into distraction or sleepiness. Lose sati when we're walking, we end up just daydreaming along, looking at things, wandering around, but not, not f focused in the present moment, not aware of our meditation object or our posture. Lose sati while we're eating, get caught up into the taste or just daydreaming as we eat, thinking around all over the place and so on. We reflect back on our day and you can see some of the lapses of sati. Some may not be obvious because the very point of losing sati is well you're not going to remember much of that, what happened, maybe only afterwards. But little by little we become aware of what it's like to have sati and what it's like to lose it. We have to keep coming back to this practice over and over again. So when you're walking meditation, we have lots of free time to do walking meditation. The weather's better, it's not raining, it's warmer. But how, how do we walk? Are we just walking up and down like anybody can walk up and down? Or are we walking with mindfulness every step? focused on our body, our posture, on the feet, or on an object, butto, or on the breath. From moment to moment, in just one period of walking meditation, how peaceful are we getting? How mindful are we of what's going on? Are we letting our mind wander all over the place? Obviously, in the beginning, we're just practicing a lot of basic mindfulness practice, samatha practice focusing the mind on the on the breath or on our feet as we walk, letting go of that tendency to a distraction. Just keep repeatingly having the faith and the energy to do that, trusting in the practice. Then if mindfulness is more sustained, well maybe we can also contemplate. But we have to be honest, if contemplation is just leading on to more discursive thought, ending up back with the world, planning the future, thinking about what's happened in the past but not really in the present moment. Well then, you have to be honest with that, come back to square one. A lot of our practice is just like that, keep coming back to re-establish mindfulness. And now we've got one, one month left in the panza, we're over halfway, just one month left. How much of our mental activities taken up with what we're going to do after Pansa? Where are we going to go? What we're going to do? Plans? And be honest, if you're walking up and down the thinking of that, then you're not yet mindful. The mind is with those plans in the future somewhere, just with fantasy, imagination. This is not going to lead to the arising of Samadhi. Without samadhi, then true insight won't arise. 
maybe we were, somebody was saying today, oh, the pants has gone so fast. Maybe we're dwelling back on what happened a month or two ago. Either way, we've, we constantly slip to the future or to the past. This is why the mind doesn't calm down. Our aim is to develop some sort of continuity, steadiness of mind, steadiness of practice, as mindfulness becomes more continuous. One of the uh, similes that the Buddha uses like the, the hot frying pan, hot pot, you drop a bit of a drop of water into it, but it's been heated for a long time, so that drop of water drops into the hot pot and just evaporates straight away. Like any physical or mental phenomena object comes up into the mind. If mindfulness is well practiced and sustained, then it just dis disappears or dissolves. We see it as an impermanent object. See it as it is, see its nature, Dhamma chart. If we're honest, then a lot of the time it's not, the mindfulness is not continuous. So we sort of remember the teaching that it's impermanent, but we're not actually seeing or knowing impermanence. We're not seeing or knowing the impermanence of the candors yet. We just can remember they're impermanent, we can think about them as impermanent, but we're not knowing them as impermanent. It's that continuity we're aiming for, continuity of effort, continuity of practice. Training ourselves to, sometimes we have to sacrifice, you know, really want to think about something, make some plan, but if that's going to take away your mindfulness, you just sacrifice it. Teach yourself, oh, I'll think about that later, I'll work on that later. If you really want to attain some, some calm, and some deeper insight, you have to be willing to sacrifice. We've already made many sacrifices coming here to live here in the forest, sacrificed all kinds of comforts, relationships with family, wives, girlfriends and so on. Made many sacrifices. Now we're having to sacrifice in the mind itself. Our attachment to thoughts, emotions, our emotional reactions to things, the excitement that comes with stimulation or anticipating something that you're interested in or want. Sacrifice the disappointment, the frustration, the dukkha waiting that comes when we don't get what we want, or we experience something unpleasant, experience other people who don't appreciate us or do what we want or more likely just the dukkha waiting of this body as we meditate. How often do we give up our sitting meditation because we feel don't feel comfortable, posture feels too painful, feel tired, or we've got pain in a certain part of the body. Often without even considering it, we just stop, say enough, get up. Especially if you're at your kuti on your own, nobody's watching, you sit for a while, then you just want to get up, so you get up. No one can stop you doing it, so you do it. And you notice when you give in to some dukkha waitana, 
you've been say, battling for a while, trying to bring up mindfulness, but then you give in to the dukkha waitana. At that moment, you probably think, oh, I can't sit anymore. It's just too painful. The knees hurt too much. Or the back hurts too much. And at that moment, it seems like that pain is very important. It's very prominent in your consciousness. Maybe it's the only thing you can think of if you push yourself to that point. But then you get up. Where does it go? It just disappears straight away. And your mind is on to the next thing. The next thing to do, the next activity, the next thing to think about. That pain that was prompting you to give up your mindfulness, give up your effort at that moment, it's just gone. It's not important anymore. How often in the course of our day, our practice does that happen? Something pops up into our experience and it just distracts us. Sometimes it's the desire to go and do something. Sometimes it's a more painful experience. So a lot of the practice about being very patient, determined, keep going, especially with Dukkha Vajana, because that's almost like a brick wall for most of us. We just can't go beyond a certain point, whether we're sitting, we're walking. It's a limitation that we have to keep little by little working at, extending our ability to contemplate it with mindfulness as dukkha waitana rather than just giving into it. One of the uh, <coughs> qualities we rely on as we practice, say if you chanting the uh, metta sutta, we say um, sakho ujjuja Suhujucha. Sako means, we trans translate it as you know, to be able and upright, straightforward, gentle in speech. Able, some people translate it as capable. But in Thailand, they often translate it with the word ong art, which means more like to be bold and brave. It's not just to be able, but it's actually to be bold enough to face up to challenges and to develop ability, develop capability. And a lot of mindfulness practice is like that. It's being willing to be bold enough to stick with some dukkha waitana, stick with your object of mindfulness while you're also experiencing dukkha waitana coming up not just to give in, cave in. Could be mental pain, uh, remembering things that make us feel unhappy, uncomfortable, so we just want to try and escape from that mood by distracting ourselves. Or it's a physical thing, feelings of tiredness, feelings of pain in the body. Sometimes we have to be bold. It's uh, one of the qualities they applied Often when people who knew Ajahn Chah when he was practicing, they would say he's a teacher or a practitioner who's on art. He's a bold has a boldness about him. But not so much bold with other people, maybe later when he became a teacher at a monastery. But he's bold with himself. He's willing to push himself, not give in to attachment to the to the candors. 
and develop that firmness of mindfulness, the continuity of mindfulness, so he could actually see his five candors as an Ichadukha Anatta. And that's where people have breakthroughs in practice from being Petujanas to being Ariyapugalas and they're willing to push a little bit further, a bit more. People say he always had that quality around him. This is why he became enlightened bhikkhu and a great teacher. He saw the value of that. Obviously not easy. It's something you train in and develop. We don't always have it to start with in the practice, but as you get more used to the practice, well, you can be bolder. If you've meditated many times sitting and you've reached a point where you felt some pain, well, you can reflect back all those times you felt some pain and you got up and the pain just disappeared. Wasn't anything life-threatening, wasn't anything gonna make you ill or seriously cripple you or anything just a feeling. If you reflect back on that, and then the next time you're in that situation, well maybe you try sitting a bit longer, not giving into it. You develop this boldness in the practice, the confidence based on past experience. And they say, if you push through Dukkha Vaitana as you're sitting, or as you're walking even, if you're walking for a long time, it makes your mind even bolder and a lot of fear, anxiety disappears because you've gone through something, a barrier, a limitation. It's the same with fear. You know, people have fear of ghosts, fear of the dark, fear of animals. When you're bold enough sometimes to face up to that challenge, go through it with mindfulness, rather than just give in, give up the practice, well, it emboldens the mind. And this is a way we build up our experience in the practice. So these um, <clears throat> full moons, new moons, are a good opportunity to embolden your practice, so you can really learn to see the nature of your own candors as they are. You know, as an experiment, just looking back at your candors under the microscope of sati and panya, and see what it's like sitting longer without changing posture, walking for longer periods without changing posture. And just teach, teach yourself, it's just the candors, it's just waitana, rising, ceasing. Sometimes we have pleasure, sometimes we have pain. It's just thought formations arising, ceasing. They are, that's their nature. That's what, that's what they do. Candors are like that. We're developing that ability to turn attention inwards and incline the mind towards Dhamma using mindfulness and wisdom rather than just always reacting to the candors, getting caught up in them, tied up in them. If we really want to experience states of peace that have that at least temporary liberating effect on the mind, then you have to keep being willing to put in effort to the practice. We have a perfect situation, we have time, we have support. 
Now it's a matter of refining those qualities in mind, you know, the sata, the wiriya, the sati, samadhi, panya. Another simile they use, if you're not experiencing any peace yet, you realize, hmm, my mindfulness is still a little bit broken up, patchy. Sometimes I apply myself, sometimes I just give up. And they talk about the chicken on the the mother hen on its eggs. Yeah. If the mother hen keeps getting up and walking away, well, the eggs will never hatch. If the mother hen has the patience and endurance and the effort, they stick with the act of sitting on the eggs, well, gradually they're incubated and they can hatch. And Buddha said the samadhi is like that. You've got to keep being willing to stick with it, even when you're restless or you're doubting, or you're tired, or have some weight in now, but you're being willing to stick with it. And you look at those um, swamp hens when, when they have a nest, they're out there on the water in the freezing cold night sometimes. And they just sit with it, sit with their eggs or the ducks until the eggs hatch. And that's coming from the mother's loving instinct, nurturing instinct. We can develop that same quality, but now we're nurturing the mind itself with the highest goal. The highest goal is the liberation of a attachment to the candors. We have to keep coming back to nurture that quality, the desire for liberation, the desire to go beyond suffering. So maybe we do have to put up with a bit of pain and discomfort as we pursue that goal but it's a short-term pain for a long-term happiness. And it's very powerful good karma, even if it seems a bit painful or uncomfortable at the time. In the long run, you'll look back and you realize all those times when you're willing to put forth extra effort, sit longer, walk longer, work with different moods, not give in to them, but just keep establishing mindfulness and letting go of attachment. All of that was worth it as you look back on your practice. Eventually your <clears throat> faith becomes internalized. It's no longer just reliant on believing in the Buddha, listening to Dhamma talks, thinking about the Dhamma or hearing the Dhamma. It becomes actually based on knowledge gained in the practice, true experience of the Dhamma, internalized and you, you know intuitively what leads to what. So you know intuitively sata, viriya, sati, samati, panya lead to liberate, have a liberating effect on the mind when they develop together correctly. You don't doubt that. Until we've reached that point and we tend to have this sort of sometimes we've got it, sometimes we don't. There's a little bit of up and downness in the practice, so we have to keep bringing up the patient effort. They say when the kind of internal faith arises, then with that you get the, the joy, the happiness arising internally. You're no longer seeking external sources of inspiration even though you appreciate you know, a good Dhamma talk or meeting 
fellow practitioners or having external stimulation, reading the Buddha's words and so on. But now you have your own internal source of happiness. The result of training yourself in mindfulness, training yourself in investigation, developing insight. It brings joy, brings peace, happiness to the mind. There's no doubt about that because you know it, you experience it. As they say in uh, the forest tradition, you're no longer bored with the practice. Even if a mood of boredom comes up, it just becomes another source of practice, another object to be observed with mindfulness and then insight sees it as it is, it's just another mood of the mind arising and ceasing. You have this kind of internal source of enjoyment, interest in the practice. Sometimes they even use the word sanuk, which means it's fun to practice. What it means is you're developing piti and sukha internally. So you don't need a lot of external things to make you happy. This is why we can live as monks. We don't need a girlfriend, we don't need money, we don't need possessions because we're developing our happiness internally through the Dhamma practice. You have to keep putting effort in to develop that. Little by little it comes up. You have, first of all, the joy from the faith, from the goodness of the Dhamma, hearing it, mixing with other Dhamma practitioners. And you have the joy of dana and renunciation, the more subtle happiness of sila, then the joy of samadhi and ultimately the, the joy, the happiness of relinquishment coming through insight. Seeing you don't need to get involved with the candors, you just leave them to, the, to be. So there's that sense of relinquishment, letting go. The mind doesn't want to attach anymore. So it's starting to experience more peace inside, just the peace of letting go. encouragement tonight and uh, we can carry on practicing our evening chanting will be at 11.30 as usual.